Hello, and welcome to Mayo Talks, a podcast produced by Mayo Clinic. This week, we're excited to share with you a talk from the Selected Topics in Internal Medicine Conference held in Kauai, Hawaii. Today's talk is Common Curbsides from the Infectious Disease Clinic by Dr. Pratish Tosh. Dr. Tosh is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Mayo Clinic. So I get a lot of uh, curbsides, mostly because I think I owe a lot of people a lot of drinks. And so um, I'll get a lot of pages about a lot of different things. And the things I usually get uh, questions about are, well, I got this test, and uh, now I don't know what to do with it. Or I know what this patient has, and I know what we should treat, except they're allergic to this thing. Um, and so, you know, so uh, how do you treat this infection of someone who otherwise can't take the sort of the, the gold standard uh, treatment? And then also, most of my uh, focus is on emerging infections. Uh, and so uh, you know, the new scary thing of the year, so a few years ago it was Ebola, a couple years ago it was MERS. Uh, now, unless you've been sort of had your head buried in the sand, it's, it's Zika. So we'll spend a lot of time uh, talking about that, plus one other outbreak. Uh, if we get a time to it. So the first part, talking about serology, or really test interpretation. Um, and one thing that comes up frequently is, well, what, what do I do with this hepatitis panel? I know I got Dr. Potteruka in the back who can give a far more detailed uh, answer to this. But there's a few different tests that you, you'll see, and they're each looking at different things. So the first one is about the surface antigen. And this, if you see this, that means the patient is infected. They have an ongoing infection. It's either an acute infection or a chronic infection. But then second is that surface antibody, and this confers immunity. And so this is either immunity through the vaccine or immunity through natural infection. The third thing you see is the envelope antigen, or the E antigen. And again, this is an antigen. It suggests viral replication and transmissibility. Um, then we have some more antibodies. So the core antibody so if, you, if somebody has an antibody to the core, that means they've seen the virus itself. This is not from the vaccine. It's exposed to actual virus. Um, and if it's an IgM to the core, it means acute exposure to the virus. And so the interpretation of this, and we'll go over sort of a few of these scenarios. If the surface antigen, so the first one, if the surface antigen is negative, that means, right, they don't have infection. The core antibody is negative, meaning that they haven't been exposed to natural infection. But in this case, the surface antibody is also negative, meaning that they're not immune. And so this is somebody who's totally susceptible. The second one, so surface antigen is negative. They're not infected. Infected. Uh, the core antibody is positive. So that means they've been exposed to natural infection. But in this case, since the surface antibody is positive, it means they were infected, but developed immunity from it. Um, so immunity through natural infection. Now, the third one, so antigen is negative, so they're not infected. Anti core antibody is negative, so they've never actually uh, been exposed to the virus. And that surface antibody is, is positive. And uh, for, the for those who may or may not know, the, the hepatitis B uh, vaccine is actually just the surface antigen. Um, and so it, by having the surface antibody positive and none of the other ones positive, this is somebody who is immune to hepatitis B through vaccination. <clears throat> Then we get some uh, acutely, so some infected people. So if the surface antigen is positive, that means they're infected. The an a core antibody uh, is positive, means they've been exposed to the virus. 
Um, in this case, this is in the search, the third one here, that the IgM is positive, which means this is acute infection. And of course, the surface antibody is negative, meaning that they're not immune. <clears throat> Uh, the fourth one where, and I'm not going to go with the last one, but uh, if the antigen, surface antigen is positive, so they're infected, the core antibody is positive, meaning they've been, uh, they've been exposed to the virus at some point, but the IgM is negative, meaning that this is uh, not a recent infection, so more of a chronic infection. Then you get some weird ones where you know, their antigen is negative, the antibody is negative, but uh, the, the core antibody is positive. Then you really start looking at other tests, maybe a referral to either hepatology or infectious diseases about maybe getting some nucleic acid testing. Uh, how many of you guys are uh, recertifying in the next year or so? Show of hands, nobody? Okay, thank you. So I just, uh, I just recertified, passed. Uh, in case you want to, uh, F plus, thank you, um, yeah, F plus, but, uh, and if you've gone through your exam and you're like, wow, there is not a single syphilis question on here, like, go back, you missed it, right, there's always a syphilis question, um, and sure enough, there was at least one, probably one I missed, uh, but, uh, about syphilis. And this is more about testing than what we're going to talk about, because people will say, well, I got some screening tests, and I, don't, I wanted to get an RPR, and I can't do it. And this is, I'll explain a little bit more to why we're doing this. And so there's non-trepidemal tests. So these are very sensitive, but not very specific. So um, if, you know, if you treat somebody, the, the, the non-trepidemal tests should, you know, say, come down usually to zero, but occasionally... Uh, very, very low. And so the RPR, many of you are familiar with, and then the VDRL often will use this in the CSF. <clears throat> and then we have the treponemal test. These are more specific, but even after treatment, there's going to be positive. And so the FTA ABS, and this is actually also going to be done in the CSF, and then the TPPA, which these are both very specific. But the question I often get is, well, why can't it just order the RPR? And part of this is related to just like pretest probability and the, and the population uh, uh, you know, and you know, things I and mean, people who actually have syphilis. And so people actually reverse this. Usually we're used to you do the sensitive test first and then the specific one. And so uh, Mayo, much of the, the labs that you actually will send to do it the opposite way. Uh, so we actually start with the treponemal test. And if it's negative, you're done. But if it's positive, then they do the uh, non-treponemal test, so an RPR. Um, and if that's positive, it's probably uh, somebody that you need to treat. If they've, maybe they've been treated in the past and you have a really low level, maybe follow up. And if it, you know, that increases fourfold, you may need to treat again. Um, and that's negative, so you have a positive treponemal test, negative non-treponemal test. Well, it's probably previously treated syphilis, but that's, if that doesn't jive well with the patient's history, then think about doing the other uh, treponemal test. And often the, the laboratories that are running this, they, this is all protocolized and you don't have to do anything with it, but this can explain, well, I just want the RPR. Often it's really, you have to be very, uh, maybe specific to the lab, uh, but often they will follow this regimen and that's uh, uh, worth noting. There's also new HIV tests that, that are being done. And most of you, I think, at least, and I'm, and I'm an ID doc, but I haven't uh, practiced uh, HIV care for the last seven years. Uh, so this was news to me. Uh, I was used to doing the HIV-1 EIA, which is then followed by the Western blots for screening and subsequent confirmation, right? But now there's new, these fourth generation tests. So you get a, a screening test that includes uh, HIV-1, HIV-2 antibodies, and then the P24 antigen. And so that's a new screening. And then if that's positive, they 
uh, confirm with what we call a differentiation anti-immunoassay, where it differentiates between the HIV-1 and 2. And if it's indeterminate, then they do nucleic acid testing um, to, to, to find that out. And this is kind of what it looks like. So the previous EIA followed by Western blot, not really how it's, how it's looking now. So if you might see, if you order an HIV test, something about a P24 antigen or uh, antibody differentiation uh, immunoassay, and this is sort of where it's coming from. The, um, you know, the P24 plus the HIV-1 and 2 antibody testing, that's basically uh, taking over what you, what you may be familiar with as, as the EIA, and then um, subsequently that uh, differentiation immunoassay is that second step. Uh, and you may still get some indeterminate results, at which point the nucleic acid testing is going to be really uh, useful. Uh, at least for HIV-1, one I don't believe is, uh, is readily available. I believe NIH may have one if you need to look for HIV-2, which is really just in West Africa. Lyme disease, uh, which fortunately, unfortunately, I get a lot of questions about uh, Lyme disease serology. Uh, part of this is a lot of, there's a lot of misinformation about chronic Lyme disease. But the important, importance of, of looking at well, how do you interpret a Lyme test? And so this is another thing where we do an EIA, and then if it's positive, you do a confirmatory Western blot. And then there is criteria on the number of bands. And you don't have to interpret these. The lab you're sending it to should be able to do that. Now, there's the IgM, which should come up sooner, but is more prone to false positives. And so it's really only useful in the first four weeks of illness. Now, if those of you in Minnesota or in the Northeast of the United States, um, if you are testing somebody in January and they have a positive IgM, that's almost certainly a false positive, right? They're not going to get infected uh, with a tick uh, in January. Um, now, the IgG, now that can take four to six weeks to become positive. Um, and so if, if after four to six weeks, you know, that IgM is probably not going to be useful, and that IgG is probably going to be your better test, and it is more specific. Uh, you get a lot fewer false positives. Now, as I think of Lyme disease tests like pregnancy tests, right? They're either positive or they're negative. But if you Google it, there'll be a bunch of people saying, well, I have these certain bands that don't quite meet criteria. It's either positive or it's negative. Um, and so if they don't meet criteria, it is, it is negative. Now, uh, the reason I bring this up, because often, especially in a tertiary care practice, people show up with the, like stacks of papers uh, from a bunch of labs that ran all kinds of stuff, and I don't even go through this. Uh, I'm not going to mention the lab name. Start, starts with an I, rhymes with magenics. Um, <clears throat> anyway, uh, it, it basically, there's creating false positive tests. Uh, not based on anything, uh, you know, not FDA validated. And if you have to look at the fine, fine print that says, you know, this is not FDA validated test and does not follow CDC criteria for interpretation. And so it's really important, sort of garbage in, garbage out, right, that the test that you're looking at, it has been validated by the FDA and they're using CDC criteria uh, because that is really what's, uh, what's valid in detecting Lyme disease. And that's really the only reason I I bring this up because most of the questions I get about Lyme disease uh, uh, interpretation is either about an IgM that's come up positive in, in December, uh, which is almost pro certainly a, a false positive, or somebody shows up with a, a non-validated test. And, um, and so those are the, the caveats I want you to get out of that. Next is about latent tuberculosis. And part of this is you know, there's different tests now. 
Uh, many of you are familiar with the tuberculin skin test, the MAN2 test, but they're also now sort of the MAN2 in a, in a test tube, the interferon, the, sorry, the quantiferon goal, which is an interferon gamma release assay. Um, now, a few things to note. If you're worried about acute, uh, sort of act, sorry, not acute, but active tuberculosis, these, both of these tests could be negative in active tuberculosis, so does not rule that out. Um, but if somebody has a positive skin test or a positive uh, quantiferon, you know, they likely, in somebody who does not have active disease, this is uh, usually latent tuberculosis infection, and they should be treated with nine months of uh, isoniazid, and there are alternative regimens, but that's sort of beyond the, the scope of this talk. Um, <clears throat> so a little bit about these different tests. So the skin test, important to know, uh, people may say, you know, it, it got really, really red, but it's not the redness that you're looking for, it's the induration. Um, and if you're concerned, well, this person's been about maybe five milligrams of prednisone, maybe they didn't react, uh, then you can use positive controls, uh, Canada being one, just to make sure that somebody, if you're concerned about energy. Now, the, if somebody had a BCG sort of TB vaccine, often this is uh, in childhood, uh, that can cross-react with the tuberculin skin test, but often that will fade after just a few decades. Um, uh, and so that's where some of these, these other tests may be useful. Uh, we think about those, those PPD cutoffs, uh, and I remember it was really difficult to memorize, and usually I just look this up every time. Uh, but it's based on the pretest probability. Rather than thinking, oh, did, do they wear socks on Tuesday and enjoy ballet? Just focusing on if, it's, if, it, if they're at high risk of either complications or, uh, uh, or of getting infected, uh, so somebody with a transplant or HIV or have been in contact with somebody with known tuberculosis, then your cutoff is going to be five millimeters of induration, not erythema. If someone has a high likelihood of exposure, um, immigrants, healthcare workers, IV drug users, not, but not somebody who is known to be in contact with an actual uh, patient, then your cutoff is a little bit higher, and then 15 milligrams uh, for basically everyone else. And, and if you really know exactly what it is, you can look it up. But for your boards, uh, if you're recertifying like I did, uh, it, just getting a basic understanding of, of what that means. So the other test is the quantiferon goal. And this is basically sort of the, the in the test tube. Um, and you do need enough cells. So it might be somebody is neutropenic or doesn't have enough cells, do it later. Um, and you have also positive and negative controls. The benefit of this is often this is not going to cross-react with BCG. So if somebody says, yeah, my positive skin test was because I got BCG as a kid, then you run this. There shouldn't be any cross-reaction. There can be cross-reaction if they have Mycobacterium marinum infection or Kinsasii infection, but um, hopefully you have an ID person involved with that patient at that time. The oftentimes I get called about this is a patient had either a positive or negative control fail so they end up with an indeterminate result. And the first thing I do is, well, you know, do they have enough cells and things like that? Um, and then there's another uh, interferon gamma release assay that's available, TB spot. So basically, I would just use the other one. If they're both indeterminate, then you just look, look at the patient and find out what the risk factors were and determine what that is. Do know this is that the quantiferon, you can basically use it similar to uh, a TB skin test. Uh, but it does not react with, with BCG. So going on to the other aspect of the, of the or one of the other aspects of, of curbsides often get are managing common infections in, with, in patients with allergies or intolerances. 
So just a few, I'll go pretty quickly over this. So cellulitis, uh, Aaron Tandy gave a nice talk about skin and soft tissue infections. So this is usually streptococci, unless it's you know, pyogenic, in which case you get staph involved. So the preferred regimen for cellulitis, streptococcus, is going to be cephalexin or decloxacillin, fairly narrow. But allergies to these drugs are not uncommon. And so uh, I would recommend you know, confirming for future use, you know, getting an allergy consultation. Uh, but in the meantime, alternatives that would cover streptococci, including clindamycin, uh, minocycline. I'm adding linazolid now. It's actually generic. Uh, so it's something to consider and some of you are concerned of has a, a severe allergy. For urinary tract infections, usually going to be gram-negative rods. Your preferred regimen is going to be trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole or nitrofurantoin. These are first line in the guidelines. Nitrofurantoin, uh, allergies are not uncommon. And people have concerns uh, in using nitrofurantoin with caution in older adults or those with renal failure. Now, there is a newer study that's come out that suggests that we can safely use nitrofurantoin in those with uh, slightly lower GFRs, but uh, so something ab above 30 should be safe. Uh, another option in these patients who have allergies would be phosphomycin, sort of an old drug made new again. Now, this is an option, but it can be expensive, so you may need to look at insurance issues. Um, and, and then if all else fails, ceftonir uh, is a nice oral third-generation cephalosporin uh, or fluoroquinolones. So we're trying to avoid fluoroquinolones for many reasons, uh, you know, increase uh, resistance, uh, QT issues, uh, you know, tendinopathies, uh, been associated with increased uh, global warming, uh, you know, gang warfare, changes in paramics, all kinds of bad things happen with, with fluoroquinolones and we're trying to avoid them. All right. Pneumonia. Uh, so usually it's going to be uh, strep pneumo plus a bunch of atypical, so H flu, chemodophilal pneumonia. So are the preferred regimens are those that cover both. So either a, a beta-lactam plus a macrolide, so getting a strep pneumo plus, plus the atypicals, or a respiratory fluoroquinolone such as levofloxacin or moxifloxacin, which covers both very well. Um, so other options in case somebody has some, some allergy to all of that, uh, you can use doxycycline for that atypical coverage plus a clindamycin, which should, should cover the strep pneumo. One other caveat in the guidelines, and this I, don't, I would not do this, uh, but uh, another consideration would be IV tigacycline twice a day has been approved for community-acquired pneumonia treatment. If somebody who is otherwise can't get any of the rest of this, do know that about 30% of people get unbelievably like vomiting. And it's just intolerable. So uh, usually I only give this to unconscious people. Uh, but it's been approved for community-acquired pneumonia in case you are truly up against a wall. All right, sinusitis. This is usually going to be strep pneumo, other strep, some staph, anaerobes. And the preferred regimen is actually only one, is uh, high-dose amoxicillin clavulanic acid. A few other options you have, uh, doxycycline, uh, levofloxacin, or clindamycin, plus an oral third-generation cephalosporin. Um, and so these are sort of other things to keep in your back pocket if Augmentin is not going to be available or not be available to you to use in this patient. Strep throat uh, caused by strep pyogenes. And, and thankfully, there's been no resistance to penicillin. But of course, there are issues of, of allergies and things like that. And so you have a few options, uh, basically you know, any cephalosporin, clarithromycin, azithromycin, or clindamycin would be other options for you. All right, 
bacterial diarrhea. So usually this is going to be pathogenic E. coli, Campylobacter, Salmonella, or Shigella. And in this case, the preferred regimen is a fluoroquinolone. And you think of uh, bacterial diarrhea as like the UTI of the gut. So it's three days of ciprofloxacin. But we are seeing increasing fluoroquinolone resistance internationally. And of course, I've mentioned about all those toxicities with the fluoroquinolones. So a few other options include azithromycin, which actually tends to be my go-to now. Um, and then rifaximin is another option. So uh, moving on to the, the last aspect of common curbsides, I guess, I, I get. Uh, and most, say most of my focus is on emerging infections. And so uh, unless you've had your head buried, uh, Zika has been in the news. And although it's winter right now in the Northern Hemisphere, we are going to see a resurgence of this. And come the spring, uh, there's going to be more Zika. And this is actually identified in Uganda, initially spelled with two eyes. Um, and uh, <clears throat> the important part is about sort of how it spreads. And so this is a vector-borne disease. Now, the, the mosquitoes, usually Aedes aegypti, aren't just traveling around the world trying to bite people and give them Zika, right? They are the vector. And so somebody needs, oops, needs to be infected within the community, get bitten by a mosquito, and then that mosquito travels to somebody else, right? Uh, and so really, the, it's a vector between two people, one person who's infected and one person who is susceptible. A thing to know about these Aedes aegypti mosquitoes is they do not travel far from home. Usually, they will live in a single dwelling for their entire short life. Um, and the vast majority of the infections are occurring through the mosquito in areas where there's endemic Zika virus infection. There are, however, a few other ways to get Zika virus infection. One is uh, through pregnancy, so uh, from the uh, infected mother to the unborn child. Um, through sex. Um, most of it is male to female, however, there has been documented uh, female to male, and then, and then through blood transfusion as well. So this initially identified in, in 1947 in Uganda, and I'll skip ahead, <clears throat> started seeing uh, outbreaks in the, in the Pacific Islands, um, <clears throat> and then uh, really coming to a head in the Americas, especially in Brazil, and then November, uh, say 2015, coming into Mexico, now all throughout the Caribbean. Um, <clears throat> and so I want to kind of update on where we are with Zika and then talk about some practical aspects for the internists. So we're just shy of 5,000 cases that have been identified in the United States. The vast majority of these were infected elsewhere and then where I came back to the US um, and were diagnosed. 38 cases were sexually transmitted. We do have a little over 200 cases that were locally transmitted within the United States. Um, six were in a, uh, an, an area very close to the border with Mexico in Texas. The rest of those are in uh, Miami Beach or the Windward uh, neighborhood in Miami. And how can you say, well, how do you know it's that narrow? Part of this is these mosquitoes do not travel far. They stay within one home. <clears throat> one case has been laboratory acquired. Um, and so far in the United States, about 13 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, they're in looking at the, <clears throat> in pregnant women who have been laboratory identified as of having Zika, you know, a little shy of 1,500 cases. There have been 37 live-born infants with birth defects identified in the United States and five pregnancy losses with birth defects. And this is just in the United States. Again, most of these were acquired elsewhere. Uh, but you know, this, is, this is real. Now, most people who get acutely infected with Zika have absolutely no symptoms. Uh, so 80% have no symptoms whatsoever, and the incubation period is somewhere between four to about 12 days uh, from the bite. Now, those who do have symptoms at 
97% uh, of them will have a, a rash. You know, if, you, if you look down here, you know, conjunctivitis is in there. Fever is not always on there. And so uh, you know, the rash and tra appropriate travel history with or without headache and arthralgias might be your only clue. The rash is a ma maculopapular rash. So this is from the CDC site. What you also notice, in addition to the maculopapular rash, is that whosoever kitchen this is, use the same wood for their flooring and their cabinets. <laughs> Which, and now I'm building a house, I'm, I'm like, I'm not sure I would have done that. <clears throat> uh, right, so maculopapular rash. That's the take home. Okay. As the only reason we're talking about this, about Zika, is because of latency and the sequelae. So most people who even have symptoms, and the symptoms just resolve over a week and nothing happens, but there is viral latency. So usually the, blood, the virus clears from the blood within a week. However, you can detect it in semen long after it's cleared from the blood. And so far we found sexual transmission at 41 days, and you can actually find the virus for several months, whether it's dead or alive is still debatable, in urine, saliva, general secretions. Uh, but the real reason we're talking about this is microcephaly, in that pregnant women who are infected, either through a bite of a mosquito or, or sexually transmission, um, you know, there's a risk to the, to the unborn child, and, you know, and either um, fetal demise in utero, or the very I would say, bad birth effects leading to lifelong uh, complications uh, from microcephaly. <clears throat> um, and then there's the risk of Guillain-Barre syndrome. And initially, this was an anecdotal observation. Uh, but to summarize things, there is, this has been pretty much proven. Uh, case series in Colombia, then also looking epidemiolo epidemiologically in Brazil, you know, where you had a sort of a baseline of GBS of one or two in 100,000 people per year. Now it's about 7.5 in 100,000 per year. So uh, looking at a, a case control study as well as epidemiologically, this appears to be uh, a real phenomenon, uh, albeit quite rare. It's um, it, it's still there. Again, my my main focus would be for uh, microcephaly. So because of this, these, uh, the CDC has recommended uh, you know, several travel, not called restrictions, but recommendations. And basically, pregnant women avoid non-essential travel to areas with ongoing Zika uh, transmission. And if a woman has traveled to an area of Zika transmission, they should postpone conception until about eight weeks after they return, uh, just to make sure that the Zika is out of their system. Now, I mentioned that, that uh, the virus can maintain in, in semen for much longer. And so a man who has traveled to a Zika endemic region should postpone conception until six months after returning. Uh, that's even in the absence of symptoms. So symptomatic or asymptomatic, coming back from an endemic area, they should wait six months. Um, and you know, these are the countries that have had uh, Zika transmission. The entire United States is in orange, and that doesn't mean the entire United States has Zika. Really, it's just the Miami Beach, the Windward neighborhood, and then now this, uh, that's in, in uh, Miami, and then a small neighborhood uh, in Texas so far that we've identified uh, local transmission within the United States. The other part of this is uh, mosquito avoidance. And so unlike, uh, say, mosquitoes that transmit malaria, the Zika-transmitting mosquitoes tend to bite during the day. Uh, they can also bat, uh, bite at night. So if you're going to go to a Zika endemic area, you know, use DEET. Um, you know, wear long sleeves. These also will prevent other things like dengue or malaria. This is, again, I want to get a little more practical for you guys. There are um, available testing. So there's a PCR that's uh, available. 
Um, you can do it in a serum. Often this is going to be cleared within a week. Urine can be there for about two weeks. This is a send out test for, for most, most places to a public health lab. There's also a serology. Um, now, uh, if your initial PCR is negative or it's been a week after symptoms, then you should do the serology. You do need to know that there can be cross-reaction with uh, other flaviviruses, and so you have to actually test for those as well. Uh, we do, if those are you who send your stuff to Mayo, we do, the, do this uh, testing at Mayo. Um, but if it, if it does turn positive, we do confirmatory testing uh, at CDC. <clears throat> so who does, whom to test and how? So if it's someone who's not pregnant, don't need to test asymptomatic people or if the symptoms um, were 12 weeks ago. Uh, but you do need to follow this conception avoidance stuff that I mentioned earlier. Uh, if somebody was symptomatic, do the PCR if it's within two weeks. And if it's negative, then you do the serology if it's between two to 12 weeks. Uh, also test with those other flaviviruses. If that serology is positive, then the CDC should be uh, sent that just to confirm. Um, now, if it's a pregnant woman, the testing is similar except to the non-pregnant, except you do need to test asymptomatic people. And even if, the, if, the, if they were symptomatic and it's beyond 12 weeks, you should do the testing. Um, and if it's tests are positive or inconclusive, uh, you should do a fetal uh, ultrasound to detect microcephaly or other intracranial calcifications or things like that, and really offer amniocentesis for Zika virus testing. But if the test is negative in a pregnant woman, uh, you should still do the ultrasound to detect uh, abnormalities. And if the abnormalities are there, then really uh, recommending ultrasound or considering, sorry, recommending uh, ultrasound, uh, amniocentesis. Uh, one other outbreak I want to mention for the internist. So there have been a, a, a outbreak related to a non-tuberculous mycobacteria, mycobacterium chimera, um, which a very rare disease. Uh, but we've been seeing more and more cases in patients who have undergone cardiac surgery. And it turns out these are linked to a very specific heater cooler device that's used in about 60% of cardiac surgeries in the US. Um, and so uh, we've been seeing, say, if you will, a rash of these illnesses. Often it's going to present a surgical site infection. So you do need to know if you're seeing somebody who has an infection, perhaps even a year, a couple years out of their, out of their cabbage, and it looks infected, be on the lookout for this, uh, for this infection. Culture for mycobacteria. If it, if it comes back looking like MAC, you may have to ask the lab to do a little bit further testing. And it may even consider contaminants. So be on the lookout for that. You do have to uh, specifically test for it. Uh, thankfully, the, the manufacturers updated the instructions and the maintenance of their instruments uh, on these heater cooler devices to prevent these infections. I appreciate your, inf your attention. Thank you very much. That's it for today. Thanks for listening to Mayo Talks by Mayo Clinic. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please subscribe and share with a colleague. You can find the video of today's featured podcast along with presentations from other Mayo Clinic medical conferences at mayotalks.com. Check us out. That's mayotalks.com. Mayo Talks is a copyrighted program from Mayo Clinic.